You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 73 for Monday the 24th of July 2017. My guest today is Stephen A. Mackay, whose first book, Wolf's Head, came out in 2013 and was an Amazon UK top 20 bestseller. It has an incredible 389 plus reviews on amazon.co.uk and if you've ever tried to get reviews, that is an astonishing number. Blood of the Wolf is the fourth and final book in the Forest Lord series, which was hovering around the 100k sales mark where we chatted. As a historical fiction author, Stephen is currently working on a brand new tale tentatively titled The Druid, set in post-Roman Britain. When we chatted for the podcast, I started by asking Stephen where his love of history came from. That's just something I've always had. Uh, My middle name's actually Alaric, and that's obviously... From my mum, she was interested in history as well, because Alaric was obviously a, a goth that sacked Rome. Uh, so she was obviously into history, and it just passed down to me. So I've always liked history, and she would get my books out of the library and stuff like that. So I always liked, not the history they taught us at school. They always taught us at school about like stuff that happened in Scotland. She never really interested me for some reason. I liked stuff like the Romans and the ancient Egyptians, and then... Later on, I started getting into King Arthur, and that led on to Robin Hood. So that's what I've always been interested in history. I've always just a, a bit different to other children. You see, I find that really interesting because I, as, as an Englishman, I, I'm not as interested in English history. My wife's Scottish. Uh-huh. I love uh-huh. Scottish history. It's so uh, bloody and treacherous and violent. It's, I think your history's great. I think it's just what you're brought up with, isn't it? If you're in an area, you don't find it so interesting. It probably the folk that live near the pyramids think they're pretty born. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's all I can imagine. Even Dumbarton Castle, I live in Dumbarton. Well, near Dumbarton. And I never thought anything of the castle until I started working on it. Do you know, and the amount of people that would come in and say, I live in Dumbarton, lived here all my life, and I've never thought to come up the castle. But you get folk coming from America to see it. It's, I guess it's just what you're used to. And what about writing then? You've got this love of history. When did the, the love of writing begin or the interest in writing? That goes back to my childhood as well. Um, I suppose more secondary school, which is, I was probably about 13. I started to get into writing. Uh, the English teacher would set me, well, set the class assignments to write things for the you know, your assessments and that. And I would always get really into them. I would normally do it stupidly. You know, I would get carried away with the humour and stuff like that for trying to impress my pals. But the teacher was always quite impressed. They'd always give me good marks and try and encourage me. So right back then, about when I was 13, I was writing out full stories, books almost, not adult-sized books, but, you know, almost a full jotter uh, of daft stories with pictures and all sorts and I suppose it just kind of carried on. I, I, I fell away because as you get older, you find other things that take up your time. And it was just the past five years I decided really to start doing it properly again. 
So when you did sit down and decide to start writing, uh, what was your kind of ambition? Was it to write a short story or did you go straight for a book? No, it was straight for a book. I always thought it would be a book because I'd been doing a open university degree. So for those kind of things, you have to write, I don't remember exactly how many words an essay would be, but maybe 5,000 words or something. And I, I never found that a chore or I was never struggling to fill up the words count. So I knew I could write a book. It was just uh, actually structuring it together and making it exciting that was going to be the hard part. And so was your degree related to the writing and the history? Yes, um, they call it an open degree, which allows you to choose subjects that interest you. And I always chose things like uh, Roman history and stuff like that, because I was reading Roman history books for pleasure. And I thought, I could get a degree while I'm doing this. So that's what I did. And I picked some other courses and other things, but most of them were classical history. How did you find the Open University as a way of studying, just out of interest? I thought it was great. Um, I used to do it in downtime in my work. I would sit in the car and I would get the books out and I'd read a wee bit, take some notes, and then come home at night. This was before my kids were as old as they are now. I had one at the time and she was really small. So I would come home at night and I would put all my notes into the essay and I would write up the essay in the space of a couple of hours. Uh, and I found it. It really suited me. It might not suit some people, but it really suited me. I thought it was quite good. And I, um, I always get good marks for the courses, so that was perfect for me. And what is your day job? Because I don't think it's actually related to any of this, is it? Uh, far from it. No, I, I read meters, uh, gas and electric meters. I do other things. It's not just as simple as that. Uh, I do other things. like I used to fit the smart meter things and stuff like that. Uh, but basically, I'm a meter reader, so I just spend... Most of my time during the day, wandering around the streets in Glasgow and chapping people's doors and reading their meters for them. So it gives me a lot of free time in my head, if you know what I mean, you know, to think while I'm wandering from house to house and come up with plot ideas and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what I was driving at, really. You, yeah. You've got a lot of headspace. When, you, when you're yeah. travelling in a car, you do get that, that headspace and it's quite useful time, I think, sometimes. But even... When I'm not in the car, even going between people's houses, just a few moments gives you a chance to maybe come up with a line of dialogue that sticks in your head, and from there it can expand into a whole scene. So because it's not a... You don't need a huge amount of brain power to do the job. You're not concentrating all the time. So it gives you a lot of free space in your head uh, to think up ideas. So you'd had a bit of a warm-up with the Open University degree. You knew that you could write, you know, sustained pieces of writing and you weren't um, intimidated by the thought of writing a book. So so what was that first book? Was it was it Wolf's Head or did you have to have a trial run before you, you hit that one? No, it was Wolf's Head, uh, although it was slightly different. The first draft had some fantasy kind of elements in it. There was an old wise woman who would appear and help Robin out occasionally until... I asked an editor to go over it and she said, look, you have to either make it completely fantasy or take that idea out. Uh, so that's what I did. I took out the fantasy elements, added a few more, the political side, and basically that was it. Will said was was finished, that was it. Now, I'm really interested in the way that you write because is it is it fair to call it uh, fictionalised history? Is that is that fair? Well, yeah, I suppose so. Uh-huh. Um, although... 
it is kind of muddy waters there, isn't it? When you talk about Robin Hood, because then you get the argument, oh, was he a real person? Was he an amalgamation? He's not historical. But I try and keep the period as historical as I can, you know. The, I wouldn't have, like, I mentioned this at the Amazon thing we, we met at, you wouldn't have a, a, a rainbow trout. Somebody wouldn't be eating a rainbow trout in medieval England. It would, you know, somebody caught me out in that and told me you need to change that. So I try and keep those kind of things historically accurate. But the most important thing is making the story exciting. So, so tell me about that then, because, you know, the story of Robin Hood, I remember I used to have a wonderful uh, Ladybird book of, of that story. And then we've got, we've had Robin of Sherwood on the telly. We've, we've all seen the yeah. films and the Kevin Costner. So we know, we know uh-huh. the bare bones of the story and we know the characters. So how do you then turn that into something that's good to engage uh, new readers? Well, like you say, everybody knows the story and well, they think they know the story, and everybody thinks it was Sherwood and a certain time period, a certain king, and so on and so forth. And when I started to look at the, the original ballads that were written about Robin Hood, it was actually set in Yorkshire, in a different time period with King Edward as the king. And from there, that gave me a, a perfect foundation to change it, just slightly, but enough to make it something new for people. Um, and I did... I must admit, Robin Sherwood was a big influence. I started watching that as research, actually, and I was really taken with the characters in it and the camaraderie and how they were so friendly to each other. Even in real life, the actors actually were friendly and you could see that. And that really gave me a, a base to work on for my characters to make them all you know, kind of mesh and work together as a true kind of band of brothers. And it was, you're talking the, it was, was it Michael Praed and it was Jason Connery, wasn't it? Yeah. Series? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, it was a really good show. Actually, I, I, I think I was slightly too young for it when it first came out. Uh, but I bought all the DVDs, the box sets. I absolutely love it now. Yeah, it's a good series. I, I really yeah. enjoyed it. I preferred it with um, Michael Pride in it, but we used to watch it every week. It was it was brilliant, uh, brilliant old series. Yeah, I think everybody prefers them, especially the ladies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm making no comment about that. But <laughs> it was strictly the drama I was interested in. <laughs> uh, well, they had a lot of funny elements as well. I don't mean funny, ha ha. Although some of it was funny, but um, pagan ideas and stuff like that. And so, a certain generation of people probably think Robin Hood was a bit of a pagan. Whereas you go back to the ballads and the actual history of that period, they weren't really pagans at all. They were very devout Christians. That's why they were going to crusades and stuff like that. So again, that gave me something else to focus on, make them more of a Christian. There'd be no sacrifices uh, in like that. You know, it'd be praying to the Magdalene I, I chose for Robin, but it would be Christian rather than the kind of pagan elements that were in Robin of Sherwood. So how was that as a first take, that book? You, you said you sent it to an editor. How much work did it need, or did you hit the ground running with it? No, I actually needed a fair bit. Uh, not so much in terms of what I already had, but just taking out that bit with the fantasy elements. And I think I added about 20,000 words uh, to fit in what she wanted. With uh, She wanted the larger picture, uh, like the scene in England to say the scene with the politics and the, what was actually going on at that time so I did have to change a wee bit for that first one but I was quite happy to do it because obviously that's the first book in a series is a whole foundation so I was quite happy to change what I needed for there and then 
as time's going on, I don't really change that much nowadays. And when you wrote Wolf's Head, were you planning further books? Had you written that sort of, or had you noted that story arc already? Well, as you say, everybody knows the Robin Hood story, so I wanted to stick as closely to those main elements as I could while still adding my own twists. So things like the the golden arrow that he, he gets uh, the, in the archery competition, and obviously he dies in the end of the the original stories. So things like that, I knew I had to fit in them, and I didn't want to try and shoehorn the whole lot into one book, so I'd planned a trilogy. But when I started writing it, the second book, actually, I got carried away, and I added in a whole load of other stuff I'd never planned. I ended up with four books in the series instead of three, so it worked out quite well, because that second book was really great fun to write. It almost wrote itself. It's a bit of a cliche writer say a book wrote itself, but that one genuinely did because I never had much planned that ended up in it and it was really good. So that's probably my favourite book that I've written so far just just because it was almost doing it itself. And what sort of page length are you going to with these books? Well, originally, if you Google novel word count, it's usually anything over about 80,000 words seems kind of reasonable so I think the first draft of Will said was it just about 100,000 words and then I had to take some out and add more in and it ended up just under 100,000 I think the fourth and final novel in the series was closer to 115, 120,000 but in amongst that I've had two novellas as well which are more than 20,000 words So these are pretty substantial books how long would it take you to write one of those? Well, about a year, and that's we're writing a novella, usually in between that as well. So, yeah, I try and take a year. I don't like to take any, maybe, you know, 15 months or 16 months, something like that. But I've been putting one out each year since the first one came out in 2013. And you're fitting that in with a day job, as you say. So you've got the thinking time, which is nice. You can yep. chug the plot and the dialogue over in your head during the day. So does that mean then you're coming back uh-huh. to write at the end of a working day? I used to do that, uh, and it was easy enough when it was just my daughter, and she would go to her bed maybe half eight and be asleep. But now I've got a son as well, and he's smaller and she's bigger, and the two of them have got stuff on, or he's wanting to stay up late. So I don't work on a Thursday anymore. I've been able to take that off from work uh, every Thursday. So I normally spend the Thursday writing, and I get the Sunday to myself in the house as well, the afternoon, and that's... It's generally Thursday and Sunday that I write, unless I've got a really good scene in my head and I can't wait to sit down and write it. And then if I can find time during the week, I'll, I'll add that wee bit in a lot. It doesn't happen that, that often nowadays because I'm I'm normally tired when I come in from work. Which is, which is fair enough, isn't it? You know, you've done a day's work and uh, maybe it's, you know, it's not always uh, well, the creative time, is it? No, I, I, a couple of days a week I do maybe nine and a half, ten hours. And I come home in between that and make a dinner as well and get back out. So, and then I maybe have to go and pick my daughter up from gymnastics at night. If my wife's taking her up, I'll go and bring her back. And by that time, it's maybe half nine, ten o'clock. You just, you just want to go to your bed. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so roughly I think I'll do with kids, no, that? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When they're young, yes. They're very, they can be very tired. Uh-huh. Um, so, roughly speaking, how many words are you are you knocking out a week, roughly? I couldn't answer that question, honestly. It, it varies completely. 
uh, some writers say you must write every day and you know you'll see them posting on Facebook oh I managed 2,000 words today and I think that can add a bit of pressure to especially new writers who see that and think oh I've not managed anything like that oh I'm doing something wrong but to me I just write when I feel like it because it's supposed to be enjoyable and it, it's still a hobby and I think when you get to the stage where you're forcing yourself to sit down and write, that's when things start to go wrong. That's when you start to write things that you shouldn't really be writing that aren't coming out the way they should be coming out because you're not relaxed. So last week on Thursday, I sat down and I wrote almost 5,000 words in the one day. But that's that's unusual for me. I, I normally try and aim to sit down and write about 2,000 words in a session. So per week, maybe four to 5,000 words Unless, as I say, I'm, I'm on a roll and I can manage to get more in, but I really don't. I don't think about it too much in terms of word count. I just, I've got my target at the end. I want to get there by the end of summer usually, and that's. I'll just kind of try and fit everything around that. Right. So you've got a, a writing rhythm to the year, then, by the sounds of it. Yeah, I, I plan over the year rather than the, uh, uh, each session. I think that's. You know, because you end up, if you're looking at your word count, you're thinking, oh, I'm only 1,500 words, and I wanted to do 2,000. Oh, I better go back and just fill in with details and describe some trees and, you know, where the sunshine looked like. You're just waffling, basically. So I don't think that's a good idea. You just write when it's, it feels natural and what feels natural. So let's go back to that first book then. You, you'd written the book. You've, you've already alluded to the fact that you used an, an editor too. I mean, you were new to self-publishing at this stage. So, so what was that first publication yeah. process like? And how much kind of, you know, taking shots in the dark was there for you? Uh, well, no, I was fairly well versed in it because I'd already been on Facebook and I knew a couple of other authors like uh, Gordon Doherty and Simon Turney, uh, just a couple of guys that write. Roman fiction and they were self-published and they'd been making a good living for themselves actually so I'd asked them for advice on how to do it I used Gordon's cover designers uh, Ben Kane had actually told me his editor his old editor and she'd worked with Bernard Cornwell which was a huge plus for me because I'm a massive fan of Bernard Cornwell's and Ben Kane's so I was quite well set up in terms of that uh, the cover was, you know, done for me. I didn't have to worry about that. So everything was really set up. But I never actually wanted to self-publish at first. It's not even so bad nowadays, but in 2013, it was still a bit of a stigma attached to self-publishing. You know, everybody wants to have their hardback and Waterstones or Asda even, and the kudos of kind of that thing. But I couldn't find an agent. I couldn't find a publisher. They all said they liked the book and my writing, but... Robin Hood had been done and there was no market for it so that was why I was forced to go indie and as it turned out I think I've I've sold a lot more books and made a lot more money than I ever would have if a publisher had taken me on yeah it's, it's, it's interesting that a lot of people get knocked back and Robin Hood's a really interesting example because you know most people would say well hang on what is there new to add to Robin Hood but when we start to go into yeah. the numbers that you've sold, you've proved that there's plenty of life in Robin Hood yet, which is, you know, which is a, it's astonishing because you, you, you've done amazingly well with these books. Um, your, your covers, I think, are wonderful. Did you get that right from the offset? Because they're beautifully branded. You know, they're all lovely in a row. You can see they're part of a series. They've all got the yep. lovely arrow going through the top. They're really, really strong covers, those. You must be really happy with those. Yeah, uh, although 
there was problems with the first one because you would get archers reading the book and then they would email me saying there was this wrong and there was that wrong and on the cover that arrow is completely inaccurate you know that would snap if you fired it from a long bow (laughs) and uh, and also the longbow was too small in his hands, you know, the picture on the cover, and the, the various things. So that it was good because it gave me feedback and I then went back to the designers and I was ma- able to make some changes. And as the series went on, I, the cover designer, I sent him pictures of real arrows and he used real arrows. And even for things like the way his fingers are on the cover, on the third book, Rise of the Wolf, I was able to send him a picture an archer had sent me of his fingers, the way your fingers grip a, a longbow. So uh, it's all quite detailed, and I, I like to go quite in-depth with things and contact people that know what they're talking about and the arrows and stuff like that. So it's all, yeah, the, the brand, the idea was there in my head from the start for the brand. I wanted the colour scheme like the green, because it's obviously the green wood. The first draft of that cover was more like turquoise. I don't know why it went turquoise, but it, was, it looked a bit strange. And I asked him to change it to green. So all that kind of stuff, it's mostly my ideas. But And I draw wee sketches on what I want on the cover. But my designers are excellent at bringing it all to life. And I think I said at the Amazon thing we were at, it's not so much the image on the cover. I think it's the fonts, the, the wolf's head font and the way Every font's the same in every book all throughout the series. I think that really, really adds to everything. It makes it look so much more professional than just sticking a font on that you have to have in paint or whatever it is. Yeah, they're, they're a beautiful set of covers. Very, very, very strong. I love them. And, um, uh, you know, your name and everything, it's just, it's perfect. Yeah. And I love that arrow going through the top too. When you look at them lined up on Amazon, you know, they, yeah. they, they look really, uh-huh. really strong, aren't they? Um, well, as I say, the paperbacks have actually, and the spines, they've all got a wee picture as well and a wee arrow and stuff like that. So they actually line up quite nicely on the paperbacks side on as well. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I do like that. Um, so with that first yeah. book there, with Wolf's Head, where, um, you know, most people self-publish a book, they it, off it goes and there's uh, just a bit of tumbleweed blows by. What 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 uh, what happened for you when you released that book? It seemed to take off within about two weeks or something. I don't know. I think it must be because one, as you say, the cover was so good. It was eye-catching. Um, but also I'd set up a Facebook page maybe six months to a year before that and I'd been putting up weed extracts from the book and building up a bit of a buzz. And I'd been sharing on you know, Ben Cain's page with people and stuff like that and talking to other historical fiction fans. And I think the fact that I was a genuine reader and fan of these guys myself you know, it's not like I was just trying to sell them a product. I was actually talking to them as a more of a friend and a fellow reader. So when my book came out, there were quite a few people ready to, to check it out, really. And I also had a, a team of beta readers. I think I maybe had about 10 for that first book who read the book and posted a review really quickly. And that seemed to really help it as well because the book appeared within a couple of weeks. There was a few good reviews already on it. Because, as you know yourself, it's hard to get reviews, especially for a new author. So if people see that a new book's out, it's got a really good cover, decent blurb, and a load of reviews, then I can only imagine that that's why it did so well. It's it's a devil to get reviews. Now, in 2013, though, uh, with with beta readers, 
um, you were quite ahead of your time there because it, it's it's a big buzz now, but I, I'm not yeah. sure that it was then, was it? Uh, well, as I say, I already knew these authors that had already been through the process a few times and were making good money at it. So they probably kept me right, although I, I think I focused more on it. Beta readers to some people, or most people, is probably they read the early versions of the book and give you feedback, almost like an editor. I never looked at it like that. I looked at it more as a team of advanced reviewers. So I'd already done the hard work of editing it. I didn't really need any more feedback on what to do to fix it, because as far as I was concerned, it was as fixed as it was ever going to be. So beta readers to me, in that sense, were more about just leaving a review if they liked it, which thankfully they all did. You have an astonishing uh, number of reviews on those books. Wolf's Head, this is just in the UK, I'm not looking in the US, has got 389 reviews, uh, 217 on The Wolf and the Raven, and then obviously, you know, as you get the newer books, those are going down, yeah. because they've still got a good number of reviews on them. But 389 reviews, you know, that that's a good number of reviews. And to, and, and to be averaging, it's four point whatever it is, you know, it's almost, it's as good as five. Uh, that's yep. very impressive, isn't it? It's really, you must be very pleased with that. Oh, that was excellent. Uh, but also, when the book started to sell quite well, Amazon put it in one of their monthly deals. And so obviously sold loads that month. And that then gained a whole load of reviews for that month from people that had bought it. And it just kind of snowballed from there. But Amazon have been really helpful to me. And it was funny because when they sent me the original email away back then, it said, and it, we're thinking about putting your book in a promotion. You'll only make, what is it, 70%? on the promoted price and I'm thinking well hang on a minute I'm selling quite well here why would I want to take a, a hit in the price for a month and I actually thought I might not go for it and I'm glad I did because obviously that's a ridiculous thing to think when you when you realise how it actually works Amazon put it in and promote it and it sold about three times what it had been doing up to that time so if anybody ever gets asked if they want to be in an Amazon promotion jump at the chance and did that give the impetus that you kind of needed to, to, to build on from that point? Is it something like that? Is it a game changer? Uh, yes. Although, as I say, I had been selling quite well at that point, so I'd already started planning for the second book. But, yeah, when you see that Amazon have helped you out and you start to think, if I can keep the ball rolling here, Amazon might continue to help me out and people will still be buying the books and reviewing them. And that, people were obviously enjoying it so yeah it definitely was it kept pushing me on and on to try and you know keep the momentum going and that's exactly how I still feel right now and it's interesting I'm looking at the categories that you're in so you're uh, presently uh, number two in the Kindle store in literature and fiction historical fiction and then fantasy now I don't know how broad a category that is but does it benefit you do you think that you're you're quite niche with, with what you're going for. Is that is that a help or a hindrance? It's not so much... The book's maybe not fantasy. Some people could see it as fantasy. I just choose my categories to try and get as high as I possibly can in each chart. Uh, like the Night of the Cross, that's a historical fiction, but it's got elements of kind of HP Lovecraft paranormal stuff on it, which is nothing like the other books. But I chose to put that in the category of Greece, books about Greece. And it was like at number one for about a year in that category because obviously there's not that many books out there about Greece. 
in Amazon UK. So to me, that was, it might not be a Greek book or particularly about Greece. It just happens to be set in Greece, but it's a perfect way to get a number one in a chart. So that's how I look at the, the categories. I try and keep them relevant, but push it as high up each category as you can get it by choosing a niche kind of chart. And uh, maybe you can help me with this because I, I, I've been looking at this today. I, somebody um, sent me an email saying um, my crime books are like you know Brit- British crime, and I thought well, I've I've gone quite broad with my categories. I really haven't been very clever with categories at all. Mm, thinking, yeah. right, well, how do you get then into a British you know crime thriller category? And I was going in, in through the KDP front door, and and really the categories are only broad at that level. So how how do you dig down into a sort of sub sub category like 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 you're getting with the Greece? How how do you get into that? Because they're not available, are they, in the KDP select? Uh, panel i i I don't seem to be able to find those more obscure categories no you're right there's uh, a couple of minor short stories and like you say there's no short stories uh category you can't pick a category for short stories so you have to put it in the keywords you know you got your like seven keywords so i I must have put in short stories in one of those keywords and now it shows up uh in the short stories category oh that's interesting yeah yeah so if you want to get in British crime thriller, just use those keywords. Uh-huh. Right, that's a good But, I, I mean, you could look up other books that are in that category and see what's, you know, see what the category is actually called and use that name in the keywords. Very interesting, because I've always done it with a web head on, thinking, you know, Google kind of search terms. I didn't realise that those search terms could help you to burrow into more categories because clearly the more categories you're in and the, the smaller categories you're in, yeah. I'm in very broad categories, I don't stand a chance. You know, I don't stand a chance in those categories because yeah. uh-huh. uh, there are million selling authors in those. I'm not going to get that, you know. Um, so that's, no, that's really interesting tip. Thank you. So you play, you play a lot of st- strategy with it then by the sounds of it. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, I saw one Roman author and his book was at number one in some chart. I can't remember what the chart was. Call it, say it was Roman. Rome, but it was when I actually looked into it, it was in the non-fiction section, but it was a novel, so Amazon don't penalise you for that, it was at number one in non-fiction for Rome, even though it was a fiction book, but it was still a number one so <laughs> anybody looking at that would just see he's number one at Rome, brilliant, that must be a good book, he sold loads, so yeah, you can play around with the categories, uh, Amazon don't seem to have a problem with it and when you get high in a category like that, then does that does that give you you know sales on demand? Do the sales keep coming in when you're at the top of a category? Oh, I thought that's a hard question to answer. It, it seemed to work like that at first for me. Uh, you would get up the charts. I mean, the good thing about being up the charts is you can then post on your Facebook page or your blog with a screenshot saying, "Look, I'm at number one. Now. Wow, this is amazing!" Uh, and you know, it's amazing, especially for somebody like me that spends my time reading meters, you know, to be number one in one of these charts ahead of Bernard Cornwell and things like that. <laughs> so I'm not sure how much it actually affects the sale. It does affect Amazon's uh, logarithm thing by pushing it into the what other people bought categories if you've sold a few. So uh, it kind of is like a, a snowball effect again. The more you can sell, the higher up the charts, it, it kind of drives more sales and more sales. I have noticed in the past few years it seems to be harder to to sell as many. Even even in the monthly deals and stuff like that, I don't seem to sell as many as I did back then. And I think it's just because of the sheer number of books that are out now. 
there's so much more choice, even from four years ago, that it's harder to sell books, even for people that have been doing it. Uh, yet you've made a phenomenal number of sales. I think uh, 95,000, I think, is the number you're quoting at the moment, isn't it? That's the updated number, I think. That's, that's an astonishing number of sales. And, and that's over a period, what, of, of, of four years? Yes. Uh, uh, well, with four years. <clears throat> it may actually be higher than that now. I've, I've not checked. Maze figures, I should, <laughs> I should have done it before this. Because, um, obviously, the four books were in the monthly deal in May, so it, it might be over 100,000. That includes audiobooks as well, though, and I, I've sold about 6,000 audiobooks. That, that's which it sounds number. a huge number. It is. I know it is, a huge, it is a huge number, but that was because, like I say, Amazon were very good to me, and when I, they invited me to be part of this ACX programme, uh, I, I think I was the first one in the UK that ever did it, when they opened it up to UK authors, and as a result, they pushed Wolf's said and they put it in one of their daily deals in America and it sold thousands so I mean it's not all down to me there's a huge amount of luck being involved in mass side of things so the numbers sound huge but yeah, I can't take all the credit for it Now a lot of people listening to this you know people who haven't yet published their first book will say hang on 95,000 sales you know 6,000 audio books where the price is a lot higher than the books yeah. um, you know why are you still doing a day job um, you know, it's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Yeah, money-wise, I could uh, just write full-time, but I don't know, there's always a kind of worry. And as I say, I, I don't seem to be selling as many now as I did back then. It seems to be getting harder. And I've heard the same thing from other authors. Some still sell millions, well, thousands constantly. Uh, but I think a few people have said to me that they've been struggling with their sales and I'm not struggling, but I'm not. It's not like kind of on the same trajectory as it was two or three years ago. So there's always a fear that what, what happens if the ideas dry up, old books stop selling as well. How will I pay the mortgage? And I actually like my job because I say you get a lot of time to think. I, I spent all last week driving around uh, the west coast of Scotland, uh, taking meter readings, using a laptop. It's a slightly more convoluted job and just a visual reading but I was only doing like 10 jobs a day and I was all over places like Gourock, Weems Bay uh, Greenock, Port Glasgow and stuff like that so it, I mean it's an easy job it's not stressful and I think I'd be mad to, to chuck it really yeah, it's, it's an interesting point because um, I, I've been self-employed for six years and then um, since Christmas I got offered something for three days a week and I have to say that um, it's taken a lot of pressure off me because I know that doing three days work a week, the bills are paid. And then I have yep. four days a week to concentrate on the writing. And it's actually, yeah, exactly. I found that it suited my temperament more because rather than sort of thinking, right, where's the money coming? Where's the money coming from all the time? I know where the money's coming uh, from and it only takes three days a week. And then I can concentrate on the creative side. And it sounds like you've got a bit of that arrangement too, that the work's not sucking the life out of you. I think that's important too, isn't it? That the work doesn't suck the life out of you as well. Yeah, well, a lot of people hate their job, and I've had jobs in the past that I hated that I made really good money at, but I despised them. You know, I end up, you really didn't want to get out of your bed in the morning for them. So I think I'm lucky just now that I've got a job. It might be not the best paying job in the world, but it, I don't hate it. I actually quite like it. And, yeah, it gives me, I only work four days a week now, so I get Thursday, uh, Saturday and Sunday to do whatever I like. Uh, I can write or I can 
play with the kids or whatever. So yeah, same as you, it's a kind of best of both worlds. You don't really have to worry about money or doing stuff like that. You know, it's a kind of safety net. I, I, a day makes a big difference. You know, if people listening to this are thinking, how how can I do this? I want to be a writer. I think it's, yeah. it's worth just just talking about because before I went self-employed, I went, um, I did four days a week like you. I did four days a week. Uh, and the difference having that extra day makes because you're yeah. almost not working as much as you are working. And it doesn't make an awful lot of difference to the money. Um, and, uh, uh, because I think I did, I increased my hours, I think over four days, something like that. And then, um, working three days a week. Now it's, it works brilliantly, I think, um, uh, as a, as a balanced life too, you know, so that you're not working every day. I don't know how people work five days a week now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds very lazy, Paul. Well, I mean, I'm working seven days a week, but, but, but I'm doing, you know, as you know, it's tr- just tremendously enjoyable and creative isn't yeah. it, writing books. So I am working seven days a week, but, you know, I'm in an office yeah, three. So. Exactly. I know, I, know what you, I know what you mean. And my wife will say to me, oh, you get a Thursday to yourself, having a great time, you know, playing your guitars and all this. She forgets that I've done all the housework and I've managed to write. 4,000 words that day, but you know, like you say, you are working, but it's it's not stressful and it's it's enjoyable. And and a really good way to, to I think, to run an author career in that it's not, you don't, not risking everything. Um, and I talked to, I was talking yeah. to an author yesterday and, and actually she's bootstrapping her business, but you know, most of us have to keep the money coming in while we're trying to get uh-huh. the writing going. And it's interesting what you said, you've made phenomenal sales, you've made sales that would make people's eyes pop out. But you're, you know, you're still commenting that actually it's not in the bag. You know, it varies, um, that the income might vary. And, and you're still even at that stage, which is incredible, yeah. a little bit nervous about the money. Yeah, I mean, I've got the money, but what happens if you, your next book's an absolute flop? Because I finished the Robin Hood series and I'm starting a new series that will hopefully be out this year. What if nobody's interested in it and I've chucked my job? I've still got a mortgage and we had an extension built last year as well, so how would I pay for that? Money only lasts so long, you know, if, if you get a certain wage from selling, say, 2,000 books a month, if you don't continue to sell 2,000 books a month, which is going to be very, very hard, then where does your money come from? You're going to need to get a job again then, aren't you? So, no, I think you can't really say it's, it's in the bag unless they make a movie or something from your book, and then I could maybe... I could maybe buy the Ferrari and quit my job. <laughs> yes, yeah. And is that your long-term aspiration, though? You know, um, because we're all in this for the long term. I think most of yep. us understand. You know, you've got to keep keep writing if you're in, in India. Unless you get that breakout book, uh-huh. most of us are going to have to keep writing to make that that income. Um, you know, do, is your long-term aspiration to 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 be able to write full time? Yes, definitely. I think. Quite a lot of writers seem to be embarrassed to say that they, they want to earn money from their books. But I've never been embarrassed to say that right from the start. That was, my goal was to make as much money as possible. Not on a kind of crass level, just on the kind of level that I want to make money for my children so that when they grow up, their life will be a wee bit easier. And I want to pay off the mortgage so that I don't have the stress over my head. I had a mortgage since I was 18. I'm now 40 and I've still got 20 years or something to go on a mortgage. So... I don't think there's anything shameful at all in saying I want to earn as much money as I possibly can from my books and I'll promote them as hard as I can to to get to that goal, you know, where I can eventually quit the day job and still have enough money to to have a happy life. One of the things I noticed, it's been really interesting 
for me because um, I, I'm not a, a best-selling author, but I've been lucky enough through the Alliance of Independent Authors to share a stage with people like yourself who are best-selling right. authors. And, it, and it's been a real education for me, um, you know, to, to, talking to you all um, because you just learn all the different tricks that people use and, and different strategies. It's been fascinating. And, and one of the things I noticed about um, you and actually most of these authors that, that, I've, that I've met is that you're not giving books away for free, which is the the current sort of thinking and strategy in the in the kind of in, in the podcasting kind of world. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested whether you've ever done that and, and why you're not doing that at the moment. Well, it's funny you should say that because I did it last week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, um, I haven't really given them away free. They sometimes give away Night of the Cross for free because it's a novella. Uh, but I don't think it actually works if you give them away for any more than about two days because people stop downloading them for some reason after two days and the chart positions then drop away and you think, why am I giving this away for free? Nobody's bothering. And the chart position's not reflecting that I'm not making anything from it. So I think if you give them away for one or two days, it bounces right up the charts. I think I gave away about almost 2,000 uh, on the first day last week. And that is really good for me because it, novellas never seem to sell that many compared to novels. I assume it must be the word count people are put off by. Uh, but I actually used your tip. You said that freebooksy.com. Oh, <laughs> using freebooksy? Well, I thought I'd never used it before, so I thought I'll try that. And there was another one called Book Lemur, or Book Lemur, I don't know how you pronounce uh, that animal. But I used them on the third day and free books here on the first day, and the difference was night and day. Free books here had something like 1,500, 2,000 downloads, and the other one, Booklamer, only had about 200. So your tip certainly worked for that. I got right up the charts. I think it got to 80 overall in the US free chart, which is really good for that novella, I think. And the sales seem to have kept coming once it stopped. So that was Murray. The other guy on the panel with us, in Edinburgh, he'd said that the page reads or something might help sales once it, the free days are finished, and it does seem to have worked. I think it's the highest it's ever been in America. Well, it's, so you see, it's interesting this because I did. Uh, let me. I'm just trying to get my my stats up. So you see, I I don't make anywhere near as many sales as I'd like. And and um, Murray said something on the stage about um, page reads. He's late, he's making yeah. a lot of income from page reads, which I. Um, I've I've never had with my sci-fi. So last month I gave away nine thousand seven hundred books last month, which got me to number one in USA and UK crime for free. So I right. I can do free, but I cannot do paid. You know that that's that's what I'm struggling with. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I, I got one hundred twenty-eight thousand page reads last month as well, and and um, it was really interesting hearing Murray talk on stage because I've I've never I've had page reads but never anything of any substance. Uh -huh. And then one hundred twenty-eight thousand, I'm getting excited now because I'm thinking, well, that's a decent number of page reads, isn't it? But uh, did you do you get page reads in your genre? Uh, I never actually started looking at it until maybe three months ago. I'd worked out my sales, but I'd never really bothered with page reads. I thought this is too hard to calculate and I used a service that calculated it for me and I realised it added something like 20,000 sales onto my total just from page reads and I thought well this is actually pretty major so I've started calculating it every month now and adding that on to the the figures but I, apparently you get paid more from page reads so 
it must be doing something. That's why I've kept all my books in KDP Select because page reads are obviously seem to be making more from page reads now than what I do from sales. Well, and I think Murray was the same. Well, that, that, that's what made yeah because I think Murray was saying that on stage, and obviously well, that's you know very interesting. But I've never uh, I've never uh, cracked the page reads before, and I've, it's, this is why I love doing these academies because you learn you learn something from everybody, yeah, don't you? Always, yeah. You always come away with tips, and um, and and so Murray talking about page reads made me think, and I've had good page reads for the first time this month. But the reason I uh, did that is I was exclusive, and I've not been exclusive before, so the exclusivity seems to be what's making the difference to me with the page reads so i've i've taken right. i've put two series exclusive now uh one of my sci-fi's has gone exclusive my page reads have gone up um which is fascinating because i'm thinking well if you know if that's where the money's being made i i need to gear things for page reads now rather than just sales yeah well that's i mean you can look at the pricing of your books then on that front Man, that night of the cross novella, I always sold it for 99 pence because I thought that was a fair price for like a novella. It never ever got very high in the charts and it never sold very much. And then I thought, what if I put it up to 199? People that are in the Kindle lending library, Kindle Unlimited, they might then see that as a more attractive offering because it's worth £2 to them rather than one and they're getting it for free. And I don't know how true it is, but it certainly jumped up the charts from then. And yeah, I don't know if I don't that. think I actually ever sold anymore, but it must be something to do with Amazon's algorithms that you don't really need to sell anymore. But if it's a higher price and it gets more page reads, then it will still go up the charts much higher than what it would at a lower price. It's interesting that you say that because the, the first of my science fiction trilogies has been free since virtually forever. And so for the first time now, I'm charging two ninety nine for it. And then all of a sudden I'm making more well, sales, which which is counterintuitive yeah exactly it really is strange how that works sometimes but then you might go in and like change the price again of a different book and see nothing it doesn't change so there's no hard and fast rules you really just have to experiment and what you said about the you can give books away for free but you can't sell any well I've had two translations done in German and it's exactly the same over there for some reason nobody will buy them it's the same covers it's the same blurb translated, but nobody will buy them. But you give them away for free, and there's like 2,000 free downloads in one day. And you think, well, all these people have downloaded it. They must be interested. Why are they not buying it? And none of them leave reviews either in Germany. I, I, I'm completely lost. It's the same as you saying that you can give them away free, but nobody will buy it. And I don't know. It's, there's... Somebody must have all the answers, but I don't. I know, I know, I know, that. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. I'm really pleased to hear that free booksy work for you. Have you ever uh, heard of or tried BookBub, which is the one I would expect you to be able to get a BookBub? They're they're very scarce, but because you've got such a brilliant track record, if you can get a BookBub, I mean, yeah. this this you know it makes careers. BookBub, it's just incredible. And somebody in your position would do brilliantly from BookBub. Have you have you heard of it or tried it? Yeah, I did. I used it uh, once with Wolf said actually. I th- think probably around the time it, it, I only had one or two books out and it did it sold I, I don't know exact numbers but it was between about two and three thousand books in that one day it was on BookBub and it went right up the charts in America uh, but I've never been able to get in it again and I think part of the problem is I know there's one of these services I can't remember what the name of it is but it always refuses to run a book, if it's not the first in the series, he says that his subs- 
subscribers don't like anything other than the first book because who wants to download the third book in a series and the first one's not free or whatever. So I, that might be why Book Bob have never let me do any more books with them. I'll maybe have to try Wolf's Head again and see if he'll take that. But yeah, I wish I could get back in because it does. I mean, I think it cost me £700. But you're making, as I say, between two and 3,000 sales. And that was maybe three years ago. It's probably even more now. So it's definitely worth it if you can get in there. I'd get Wolf's Head in it again because, I mean, I, I generally find because I, I'm, I'm doing the poor man's versions, you know. So I, I keep, I haven't had a first yeah. book bub yet. I'm, I'm still trying for a book bub. I'm hoping with the crimes to get one. But, um, so I, so I call free books the poor man's uh, book bub basically because they'll, they'll let you uh-huh. in and the price is reasonable. And, and, uh, depending on your genre, I mean, again, I shifted a load with free books in crime and I've always yep. been happy, like the, the kind of numbers you got with, with yours with free books, I've always had good numbers, but I was ecstatic with what I got with crime. I mean, they fly off the shelves uh, with, with crime. But I, I find that that will keep the momentum of sales going. You know, a good promo every quarter yeah. keeps the momentum going all the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Because um, it moves you up the charts, people see you. But, you know, it just, yep. it just goes around in circles. So presumably you're going to be, that's where you are now with the free booksy promo. It's, it's doing that for you. Yeah, and I've actually set up another one uh, for one of the other books. But, my problem with trying to get books in deals is if you put them in deals, like a countdown deal, or especially free, it turns Amazon right off and they won't put you in one of their deals. So I've been trying to avoid it in the hope that Amazon will put me in one of their deals. <coughs> and Will said it's currently free on the Prime Reading program. So I don't think I can offer it for 99 pence because that would affect their promotion and the prime reading. So I'm kind of in a bind there. But to be getting an Amazon's promotions is the best you can possibly get. So that's how I kind of try and work my books around them. And they come to you when that happens? Uh, sometimes. And sometimes I'll, I'll ask them, you know, if I'm feeling particularly brave. Because I've got contacts there now with people, as you must have, no, I haven't. I'm from no, people. I'm hoping to build a few from, from <laughs> doing these Amazon events, but now I'm I'm just you know at the bottom of the pile at the moment. So there's, there's, I've no no contacts. I'm not, not well, I had, books. <laughs> well, I had made some. Uh, unfortunately, they all seem to leave after about a year. So I, I, I'm kind of left at this stage. I don't really know many of them now. Uh, but up to this point, I would occasionally, when the books were not selling quite as well or been down the charts, I would occasionally email one of the contacts and say, how about a, a promotion, you know, I've got a new book due out and sometimes they would do it and sometimes they wouldn't. I've never been in a promotion in America, actually. That they, they offered me it once and it never came to fruition, which was a shame because you think America, you'll make a fortune over there, but it never happened until now with this prime reading thing, which it has bumped up the charts, but not as much as I think a daily deal or something would do. And are you using, um, you said that you've got something to look at your stats. Are you, are you using Book Report to do that at the moment? No, I, I was using Book Tracker. Probably. I don't know if you've heard of that. It costs about $5 a month. It, it, it tallies up all your sales from kind of the beginning of time, plus all your page reads. So you still have to work it out right enough for the page reads. Um, I changed my password on Amazon and Book Tracker couldn't get back in. I started getting problems logging in and I, I get so frightened that KDP might somehow block me and I wouldn't be able to get in that I stopped using their service. Uh, but I mean, it's a decent service. It, it worked well enough up to that point. 
I just get paranoid. Uh, as you do, because it's your kind of main source of income. So I stopped using them, but yeah, it's a decent service. Well, I'm sending you, as we speak, I'm sending you Book Report, which is a similar thing that I've used, but it gives you your page reads in there as well, uh, which you may find useful. Right. And uh, I don't, you, you may have to pay for it. You have to pay if you hit a certain level of sales, but that's not something that's troubling me at the moment. So, so you, you may have to pay a little but bit for the, it. The only, the only thing, what, do you have to give them your password? Uh, you have to log in. You have to log in through Amazon, but it, it's very reliable. It's never let me down. You know, it's it's sort of I, I logged in once and that's it. It's uh, it's it's been fine. It was just it was just at that book tracker you had to give them your password, and then uh, when I was looking at it, when I couldn't get logged in to Amazon, I noticed someone saying that that's against terms and conditions of KDP. You're not supposed to give out your password. It's totally against KDP rules. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. What if KDP decide they're not too happy with me? doing that so that made me paranoid as well and it's kind of made me a wee bit worried about doing anything like that in the future mm, it's an interesting point actually yeah yeah uh, well maybe i'll have a little check of that i, I thought about it but it wasn't uh, never crossed my mind until i saw it online i thought oh hang on a minute this is about worrying i'll have a look at that yes I, I never thought about it i just signed in once and and i just find it so handy for the stats because they're meaningless largely yeah you know for the for the amazon interface um, it's just so difficult to see uh-huh. what's going on, but it it, uh, it does give you the page reads, which is you know, which is quite a nice um, quite a nice thing to have. I think. What, what, what I'm about... wondering if that is the same service I was using. It sounds very very similar. It does sound very similar. Yeah, yeah. Have a look at it. I've sent it to you via email, and then and then just let me know if uh, if that was the one that um, was flagged. Right. What about the um, um, we were, we met in uh, Edinburgh at the the Amazon event. How how sort of beneficial. Do you find events uh, like that? Do you do a lot of things like that? No, uh, that was only the second one I've ever done. I was at the London Book Fair. Amazon invited me to the London Book Fair uh, three years ago, and they kind of paid for everything. They paid for my train fare, put me up in the hotel, and everything. It was absolutely brilliant. It was an experience of a lifetime. I really loved it. But no, I, I don't think. It's particularly worth it in terms of selling books, but I think it's a lot of fun if you can get invited to one of these to go along and do it because you have done this for a living, haven't you? Uh, and panels and interviewing people and stuff like that. Yes, yes. So you've used it, but for me, it's, it's I mean, it's fish out of water for me. I've never done anything like that until now, but it's really enjoyable. It's like when I was in a band, you know, getting up on the stage and playing in front of people it's really good I really enjoy doing it but I don't go out of my way to seek things like that if you know what I mean I get very nervous before them and uh, I don't think it's really I mean you don't sell any more books or anything do you from that kind of thing it's just a fun thing no, I think the contacts uh, are the benef- most beneficial part of it for me. I mean, as a podcast host, obviously, I meet lo- lots of great people to interview. But I think the, yeah, uh, the networking is really, really, really good. I've enjoyed the networking. I went to one in Manchester, too. Uh, the contacts you make, I think, are just great. And the tips you pick up are brilliant as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is worth it in that way. But uh, obviously, I do still work and I've got the kids. So it's kind of hard for me to just to nip along to these kind of things, because there's not that much near me. You would think Glasgow, there would be a lot, but there's, I don't think I've ever seen anything in Glasgow that I, I thought about I could go along to or try and get myself invited to. There's, I don't know why they picked Edinburgh either for that, because I think it would have been a lot busier if it had been in Glasgow. And as far as I know, the Historical Novel Society are having their thing next year in Edinburgh, and again, I'm thinking, 
a bit bigger if it was in Glasgow. More people would go, but I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean. And as a as a I'm a, as a northerner, I mean you're even further north than I am. This is one of my bugbears on this podcast. You know, I always have to travel to to London usually to go to self publishing yeah. events, um, and there's just nothing in the north. So I am I am grateful to Amazon for putting these events on in in Manchester, but that's still three hours yep. away for me. Uh-huh. And, and Edinburgh was <laughs> about an hour away for me. You know, Glasgow's about an hour from Carlisle where I live. Um, but it's so refreshing yep. to have something in the north, isn't it? And you must feel that in Scotland. Oh, definitely. I mean, I've been invited down to other things by Amazon and Audible as well. I've invited me, but again, it's in London. And it's maybe come down for a lunch in London, and I'm going. I can't come down on a train to London for a lunch. Do you know, I'd have to stay overnight at my own expenses, stuff like that. So, although I would love to go to it and meet the people again that I met before, and that I just can't justify doing it. So, yeah, I was really glad Amazon put that on in Edinburgh, and I hope they do one in Glasgow or a wee bit further south but not too far <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah but you're right i mean you know i always say to people they say i'll oh, just come down to london but i say yeah but that's three hours yeah. traveling for me that's four or five for you and then uh it's under a quid for a hotel now in london you can't yep. get one yep. cheaper than that and then you've got to eat at all the other sort of incidentals you're uh-huh. talking two to three hundred pounds just to nip down to london and a lot of time and uh, you've got a young family. I time, uh-huh. you've got the young family as well yep. so it has the domestic and it's just not as simple as that is it no, it's not. Definitely not. Uh, and as I say, I don't think it's worth it in terms of the book sales. I mean, if it's an Amazon thing, fair enough. If you get, as you say, the contacts, but it really is. It's just a fun thing, and the time and the money and all that. You can't really justify it when you're having to go as far as it. Plus, it was very nice for me to go to Edinburgh because you think everybody here can understand my accent. <laughs> although, although the Edinburgh accent is a bit different from Glasgow. Yeah, it's not the same as being in London where half the people never had a clue what I was saying and I'm talking about even the people on the panel the Yorkshire guy he never seen me have a clue what I was saying and he just had a blank look in his face half the time and he was from Yorkshire he had an even worse accent than me <laughs> well my wife says this she says you know ever since we moved, <laughs> ever since we moved back to Carlisle she says people understand me instead of just looking at me you know like I'm, I, uh-huh. I've come from a different planet or something exactly that's just strange yeah my wife hasn't got a broad I mean accent. people from America understand that yeah. No, but that's, you don't think people have got a broad accent and then you talk to someone who has got a broad accent and they, they look at you like you've got two heads. But, I mean, people from tourists from Austria or Germany would come over and I'd meet them at the castle and they never had a problem understanding my accent. Americans can understand it. And yet certain areas of England just cannot get my accent at all. It's weird. <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? So, you, <laughs> so uh, you've got audiobooks. You're not planning to read your own audiobooks then yet? No, no. You can probably actually hear my voice is starting to go already a wee bit. I find it quite hard to talk for so long. Um, I did. I've got a free short story, actually. If people want to sign up for my mailing list, they get a free short story called The Rescue, which is part of the Robin Hood series, and that's the only place you can get it. But I thought it might be nice to make that an audio version for because I've got quite a few actually blind readers who enjoy the audiobooks. I thought I don't want to have to pay my narrator for a free book I'm going to give away, so I'll try it myself. And I sat down and I started reading it. And it actually it was it sounded okay, but my voice just can't take the strain. I can actually feel it cracking even just now. So no, I don't think there's much chance of me doing it in the future. Plus my characters in that series are from Yorkshire. So I'd have to try and put on a Yorkshire accent I don't think it'd be it'd be more a comedy thing I think 
So how how have you gone about your ACX books? And have Amazon taken care of that, or have you have you done? No, they invited me to be part of it uh, because it wasn't open to UK authors back in twenty fourteen. So they asked me if I wanted to try it out, but I mean I had to pay for it. They never funded it or anything, but I get a good royalty rate at the time. So I had to find the author, which you can do on ACX. uh, Sorry, the narrator. I put in. I had a certain voice in mind, you know, I wanted somebody with an upper-class, middle-aged Englishman. Well, that's the kind of voice I wanted, I thought would suit the book. Uh, and I was lucky enough to find a really good guy who'd been in James Bond movie. Well, one James Bond movie. It was only an extra, but it's still a good thing to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he has actually narrated Channel 4 documentaries and stuff like that, though he has got a really good voice. And... Uh, He's an excellent producer because he's always on time. He's always reliable. And I've heard some real, real horror stories about producers and narrators on uh, ACX. But he's excellent. And so I just pay him up front. Well, I pay him as the, he's producing the book, you know, a third at a time or whatever. To keep both of his right. And uh, and it's just it's like Kindle, you know, you just upload your files and get your cover uploaded. And then the Amazon and Audible put it through for sale. And it's just... It's almost exactly the same as a Kindle. Uh, it works really, really well. And as I say, I get blind readers now that email me and tell me how much they love the books. Yeah, it's a huge industry. I know the talking books is, is just a huge industry and really, uh, I think, gratefully received too because, you know, they, they want great fiction, don't they? It's, you know, you don't want to be hearing rubbish. You want to hear great fiction. So it, I, I think Yeah, it's- but the only thing is I get some people saying to me, you know, how many books do you sell and stuff? For that, and I can't. I'm not the best person to ask because, as I say, I had that huge boost at the start by Amazon putting the book in a, a deal, the Audible version. So that probably hooked on a lot of people that have bought the following books as well. So I think it's completely different for someone else who's not had that kind of push. I don't think many authors, indie authors, sell particularly many books on Audible, and I'm not really sure it'd be worth it for most of them. Maybe that could be a a topic for a future guest if you have one on. Well, we've done quite a lot on this, yeah, and I, and I have an audio book as well, which I got self oh, right, self produced. Right. Yeah, so it's quite quite an interesting little topic. Now, what's my top tip with that? Hang on, I'm trying to remember what the site's called. I have a, I have a top tip with that uh, that gets reviews and gets the sales going. It's it, um, audio book boom. I think the site is called audio book boom. And um, okay, I'll give that a try. Uh, and and you, you, basically, you get codes off Amazon to to give you. Oh yeah, away. yeah. I, I, sometimes I can't give them. <laughs> right, well, audio book from years ago. Audio book boom. Not on there. No, not on there. No, uh, I'll try it on there. Um, but uh, you basically, people ask for the book. You give them the code, and the idea is that they sort of review it. But I think, I think if right. you, if you get the sign up bonus, you get a sign up bonus for audio books. Yeah, can't uh-huh. you? And yeah. So you can make your money from that sometimes rather than the book. Um, but it just, um, yeah, it got my audiobooks uh, going audiobook boom. And um, the other thing that people don't know, I'll just mention this for listeners as well, is that if you run out of codes, you can ask Amazon for more US and UK codes. Yep. Just ask them for more. Just keep asking, and they'll keep supplying. So I just yeah, mentioned that uh-huh. for people who haven't done it. Yeah, I have done that, uh, probably with Wolf's Head. But, uh, there's other books. See, I don't know where it is. A lot of readers are so loyal when you offer to give them a free one for a review copy, they would rather use their monthly credit rather than taking it for free off you. They want you to get the money, do you know what I mean? Rather than, it's as if they feel like they're diddling you somehow. 
and they want they're feeling that loyalty that they want to give you the money. So I sometimes struggle to give away those codes. <laughs> it's a it's a nice situation to be in. But it is, it's very nice. Uh, but at the same time, you're thinking, why is nobody taking these codes? What's wrong with me? Well, give, give Audiobook Boom a, a try, because that was a little secret that I discovered. I can't remember where I discovered it, but it um, it does work very nicely just to get you know to get those things going. Um, we've been talking for nearly an hour, so I, I, I need to sort of bring this to a, <laughs> to a conclusion. I'm amazed how fast it's gone. Um, you've done brilliantly. Uh, c- congratulations with that, because uh, you know, what a stunning achievement that is. You're going to be breaking 100,000 books soon, and you know, that's no mean Yeah, thing. but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to add it up. Once once I finish this and make sure it probably won't be, it'll be just below it. I'll be I'll be annoyed, but hopefully it's over it. That that's because that's a lovely little number to hit, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well that's things like that, milestones, that's you know, push that, promote it. That I always say I don't like it's almost like boasting saying, Oh, I sold this X amount of copies but no one else is doing it for you. You know, I don't have an agent or a publisher or a publisher assist or anything like that I'm the only one that's blown my own trumpet here so if I've got 100,000 sales I have to get it out there and let people know because it, it's almost a mark of quality it's not a guarantee but for someone that's sold that many books you think all those reviews there must be something in it so here have a look people and give it a try so it does feel like boasting but someone's going to do it and it's got to be me well you know congratulations you've got a lot to boast about it's a brilliant achievement what what's coming next for you what what's you know what how's your year looking now and what's coming out next for you well i've got a final robin hood novella uh that's hopefully going to be published by a publisher they've provisionally accepted it and they were supposed to confirm it this week but i've not i've not heard from them uh but I, i think it's all basically done and dusted but I've not signed the contract but that'll be my first book that's not self-published but again it's another novella so we'll see how that goes but my new series is about a warrior druid uh, in post-Roman Britain so just as the Romans have left England basically but my druid's kind of from Scotland so he's going to be on a quest all throughout Britain meeting Saxons and the remnants of Roman Britain, the old soldiers and stuff like that. So it's been really interesting to... Well, I was never interested in Scottish history, but I've had to get interested now for this, and it's been really, really good. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.